Well, the Christian movie, uh, The Godfather, uh, is one of my personal favorites. Uh, and in that movie, uh, Don Vito Corleone, uh, played by Marlon Brando, uh, had turned over control of the family business to his son, Michael, played by uh, Al Pacino. And after that, uh, the Don served only as Michael's conciliary, his counselor, his personal advisor. And the Don advised Michael that the heads of the rival families were going to conspire together to put out a hit on Michael to try and assassinate him. Uh, and he said the way it would happen is that somebody from his own family would come to Michael. He would approach him uh, with uh, a message from the heads of the other families uh, proposing a meeting. And the Don said, at that meeting, Michael, you will be assassinated. Uh, and then the, the Don said to him, remember, remember, Michael, the one who comes to you proposing the meeting, he is the traitor. Well, it turned out exactly as Don Corleone predicted. Tessio, a longtime servant to the Don, approached Michael uh, at the Don's funeral and said, the other heads of the five families would like to meet with you uh, to reconcile. And Michael okayed the meeting. He said he would attend, but just before he was supposed to go, uh, he contrived an emergency so that he would not have to attend that meeting. And then the other henchman grabbed Tessio, uh, and Tessio knew that his cover was blown. Uh, and so it seems to me that uh, my, when, when Tessio said, tell Mikey it was just business, it was not personal. And it seems to me that assassination is always personal. <laughs> but Tessio rationalized it, saying it was just business. Uh, and it seems to me uh, that at that point, Tessio knew it was curtains for him, uh, but survival for Michael. Uh, later in the movie, Michael says one lesson that he learned from his father uh, that he'll never forget is to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Uh, and so what the Don, uh, Don, his, his father, passed on to Michael was this, this idea of discernment, this gift of discernment, the ability to make discriminating judgments. Now, The Godfather, of course, is just a movie. Uh, and it's important for us to remember, though, that, that Paul lists this gift of discernment among the gifts uh, that he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits. Well, distinguishing between spirits is the gift of, profit, or of uh, discernment. It means the ability to judge wisely, to, to look at a situation and be able to evaluate it properly. Uh, a good friend of mine calls it heaven-sourced wisdom. I've had another good friend of mine tell me that this is uh, sanctified common sense. That's what we call uh, this gift of discernment. Uh, Jesus exercised this gift in John chapter 2 when he said uh, that Jesus did not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in a man, right? So he's exercising this gift of discernment. And Nehemiah had the gift of discernment too. Uh, we see it throughout Nehemiah 6 as his enemies tried to destroy him and making all these plans and conspiring to ruin him. But Nehemiah was always one step ahead of them, always exercising the spiritual gift of discernment that he had that allowed him uh, to persevere because he had this great gift of discernment. And, and Nehemiah learned to keep his friends close and his enemies closer as he's thinking about the motives of Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and others who seem to be uh, out to do him harm. So the way he got this gift of discernment was that Nehemiah prayed all the time, right? We've seen that already in the book, that Nehemiah was constantly in prayer. And so he had this God-given discernment that allowed him uh, to judge his enemies and be able to persevere 
through this wall building project rather than to become discouraged all the time at the relentless opposition of his uh, enemies. I mean, you got to give his enemies credit for one thing. They sure were persistent, right? They weren't going to stumble at the first uh, uh, hurdle. Uh, they wanted to take down this wall, and they really were uh, persistent in trying to do it. So they wanted to discourage Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, when you think about it, had every reason to be discouraged. In the beginning of the book, uh, chapter 1, he prayed for four months before he approached Artaxerxes, uh, asking if he could go back to Jerusalem to build the wall. And then in chapter 2, Artaxerxes gave permission. He gave a budget. He sent letters of endorsement. Uh, did all these things that, that would seem to verify that, uh, that Nehemiah is in God's will and that God is behind this whole thing. But then, uh, as soon as chapter 4 comes and he arrives in Judah, well, now all the opposition raises up its head. His enemies were hostile. They did all they could to stop construction of this wall. And through mock mocking the people, threatening the people, shaming the Jews, the enemies, their enemies hoped that they would discourage the Jews and so that they would just give up and realize that this task was just too monumental and that they would just throw in the towel. And so Nehemiah prayed, he encouraged the people, and then he set up guards to help them as they continued to build the wall. And as soon as Nehemiah got the wall built to half height, well, then there was trouble from the inside, right? The, the wealthier Jews and the nobles were lending with interest and causing dissension and, and disharmony within the group. And so they were, they were lending at interest, they were taking their property, they were, they were even enslaving their children when they could not repay their loans. And of course, that kind of disunity would, would thwart the wall, and so Nehemiah had to deal with that. Uh, and so he had to, to stop those practices and, and bring unity back to the group. And now, as we come to chapter 6, when all those things didn't work, uh, this time it's personal. This time it's personal. The only way they're going to stop this wall from going up is if they attack Nehemiah, the person of Nehemiah, either physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, and, and certainly to attack his credibility. And they did this in three different ways. In the first part, verses 1 to 4, they tried to distance him from the project. And when that didn't work, they tried to disgrace him to his workers. And when that didn't work, they tried to deceive him through a traitor. But, and we can see why Nehemiah might be discouraged through all of these things. But, but Nehemiah was not the kind of man who was easily discouraged. He used this heaven-sent wisdom uh, to outsmart his enemies and, and to stay in God's will and to keep moving forward. So uh, we talk, we're talking about three plots now, three plots to take down Nehemiah. And the first one is distancing him from the work. Uh, so uh, Tom just read that to us, so I won't read it again. But uh, just think about this. When you have uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and, and Geshem, uh, and they're doing everything they can to, to try and stop the project, and here you are, you're Nehemiah, uh, you're wondering how you're going to be able to thwart all these adversaries as they're doing all they can to take you down. Uh, and then through prayer, you realize that, you know, with me and God and these people, we're, we're holding our own against Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And so imagine you're Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They're thinking, we've done everything we can possibly think of. What is going to stop construction of this wall? They couldn't derail the project no matter what they did. And uh, I think of, of the Grinch sitting uh, on, on the cave on top of his mountain, right, over Whoville, thinking, I, I must stop Christmas from coming. But how? He couldn't figure out how to do it. And so Geshem and Sanballat and Tobiah realize you know, what we're doing isn't working. We have got to attack Nehemiah personally. If we cut off the head, then the body will die. And I think that's what they were thinking about. So they, they get together. They have this great idea. Let's, let's lure Nehemiah far away from the city, and we can kill him outside the city, 
And while he's outside the city, we'll send in our other enemies that we'll hire, and they will uh, scatter the people, and they'll we'll, we'll destroy the wall. And they probably agreed that that was a great idea, so they sent a letter to Nehemiah. Now, by this time, Nehemiah had the walls built to full height. All that was left to do now was to hang the gates, and the city would be completely enclosed. So he receives this letter uh, from these three, asking him to come to this place called Kepharim, which is in the plain of Ono. And that's all the way out to the west there, uh, 37 miles from Jerusalem. Now, why would you have to have a meeting 37 miles from Jerusalem, right? Uh, Nehemiah was no dummy. He figured out what was going on here. They probably made it sound like it was a meeting to reconcile. But, you know, so far in Nehemiah's dealings with these three, uh, he's seen no reason to believe, no indication that these, these three had any uh, amiable or amicable intent. So uh, Nehemiah, using his spiritual discernment, uh, knew that they meant him harm. Now, it may have been an assassination plot. We're not told. It just says he's meant harm. Or it may have been some other kind of physical uh, damage to him, but certainly an opportunity to destroy the wall and to disperse the people who were working while Nehemiah was gone was in their sights. But Nehemiah knew better than to trust him. He told them that his work was way too important to be delayed by going to some distant meeting. So he's exercising this gift of discernment, which of course is a gift that you and I need to exercise as well. We all need discernment. And discernment is simply the ability to, to judge wisely, uh, to be able to determine what is from God and what is not from God, and then act accordingly. Uh, for us, we need to judge right teaching from wrong teaching, right? We need to be able to discern good leaders from bad leaders. Uh, we need to recognize absolute biblical truth and distinguish that from secular, relative truth that's so pervasive in our culture now. We need to discern what causes to give to, what's a good cause, what's not such a good cause. We need to be able to know what candidates to vote for. That's an act of discernment. Uh, one of the things that, that we probably all have struggled with is when to speak and when to be silent, right? That, that's an act of discernment, knowing when to talk, when to listen. Uh, that's a very difficult thing. So discernment is so needed today when we can't trust our politicians and we can't trust the media. Uh, we ask ourselves, well, who can we trust? Well, we can trust God, and we can trust what he says in his word. His word is absolute truth. We can trust the Holy Spirit, God living inside us, to lead us, to direct us, to follow the path that he has us on. We can trust Jesus, who gave his life for us. And so the more we know God through prayer, uh, through Bible study, the more we'll have the gift of discernment. It's a gift that we cultivate by spending time with the Lord in his word and through prayer. So when we don't know what to do in a given situation, we should be on our knees. We should be asking the Lord what we ought to do, and we should ask God uh, for his discernment, for his wisdom in a given situation. So imagine Nehemiah receiving this first letter, uh, and I imagine him down on his knees because he was a man of prayer. He's saying, Lord, help me discern what it is that they, these three are up to. Uh, what is the wisdom that you would give me here in this given situation? Should I stay, Lord, or should I go? Should I, should I go out there to this meeting? Should I stay here and do this project? 
Well, we said last week, Satan has a lot of arrows in his quiver, right? And so uh, he used Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem to try and uh, infiltrate in one way uh, by, by uh, causing chaos in the camp through, this, uh, through these unethical money lending practices and also by threatening them, so direct threats. And now here's another way that, he's tr that, they're trying to, uh, say, that Satan's trying to use them uh, to stop this project, to distance him uh, from the project so that it would be delayed. But through prayer, Nehemiah gets on his knees, he gets with God, he understands that they meant him harm. Uh, but persistent fellows that these three are, three more times they sent the same letter and three more times Nehemiah had to same, uh, send the same response. And I think Nehemiah was patiently waiting them out until the time where the letter that they wrote would actually expose their true motives. And that's what we see happen in this next section where uh, they try to disgrace Nehemiah before the people. So uh, verses five to nine, then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same way a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations and Gamshu says that you and the Jews intend to rebel. For that reason, you are rebuilding the wall and you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem to the king concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us consult together. And then I sent a message to him saying, nothing like these things that you are saying has been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now God, strengthen my hands. So Sam Ballot sends an open letter, which means that it's open to anybody to read. Anybody could read this letter and probably many of them did. And that was intentional because they were trying to raise doubts in the minds of these Jews uh, who were following Nehemiah and building the wall about Nehemiah's motives and to disparage him before the people. So again, more of the arrows in Satan's quiver, gossip, rumor, innuendo. These are very old tactics. In fact, the oldest tactics that Satan has. He used them in the Garden of Eden, causing Eve to question God's motives, to discredit God, and to distract Eve from what God actually said. And so here, Satan wants to cast doubt in the minds of these Jews on Nehemiah and his motives and his character. And that's definitely personal. That's a personal attack on Nehemiah. Now, this man, Gamshu, he apparently is the rumor spreader. Gamshu is an alternate spelling of Geshem the Arab. So it's the same person. Gamshu and Geshem are the same person that we've been talking about. He's the one spreading the rumors. Sanballat writes the letters. Uh, Geshem spreads the rumors. Uh, and so uh, Sanballat says in the letter that, that you're trying to rebel. That's what this is all about. That's why you're building the wall. And they hoped, I think, that the workers would say, oh, now we finally see through Nehemiah's wicked plot. He's having us build the wall and, and surround us in here so he can declare himself king and then have the wall built at our, uh, on, the, on the strength of our backs so that he'll have this kingdom. Well, that's a dangerous thing to put in the minds of these Jews because for, as Nehemiah says, even at this stage of the project, the walls are built to full height, but the gates are still not up yet. So the city is very much vulnerable to attack. They can just walk right through uh, these unfinished gates. So uh, Nehemiah has to worry about this, that this is, this is something that, that if, if this rumor is allowed to stand, uh, it could be detrimental to the project. And so here again is another opportunity for Nehemiah to be discouraged. And he's had 
lots and lots of opportunities to be discouraged, but uh, Nehemiah uh, would be thinking to himself, these enemies of mine, they are so persistent. Will they ever stop? God, why do you continue to allow this? Well, what would you have done if you were in Nehemiah's situation, right? Now this rumor's out there, right? And, and whenever a rumor is out there, we have to make a decision about whether we're going to address the rumor or whether we're going to ignore the rumor. Well, if he ignored the rumor, well, what might have happened? Uh, his, his own people might have thought that the rumors were true. Sometimes a rumor unanswered, even if it's a crazy rumor, needs an answer or else people's minds, imaginations will run away with them. But then, on the other hand, if he takes the meeting with Sanballat, well, then uh, his people might have thought, well, maybe he's going to change allegiances on us. Maybe he's going to switch sides. Maybe he's going to try and negotiate a good deal for himself and leave us out in the lurch. Uh, and then forget the workers for a minute. Uh, Sanballat said that he was going to report these nefarious activities of Nehemiah to the king. That's Artaxerxes, the man who sent him in the first place, right? So Nehemiah was known by Artaxerxes. Probably Artaxerxes would not have believed these rumors, but what if he did? Uh, Artaxerxes had other rebels in the kingdom, and, and Nehemiah would not have been the first one to get a little bit of power and then decide to rise up against the king, right? So Artaxerxes might have believed these rumors. And so this is all very dangerous to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah decided that he has to deal with this head on. He has to confront this rumor. He used this gift of discernment to call his enemies out. So no doubt Nehemiah prayed, <clears throat> and then he went on the offensive. He flat out called Sanballat a liar. Verse 8, nothing like these things that you're saying have been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. So don't you just love Nehemiah? I mean, you just have to love this guy. Uh, he would not be intimidated by these evil three. He was on a mission. He knew that God was in this mission with him, even though he was dealing with all these external forces against him. And he wasn't going to let anything distract him or stop him from finishing it. So he was wise enough to know that these three wanted to discourage him from the work, and he was bold enough to expose their motives. Well, you may remember from the New Testament that Jesus had to deal with these kinds of people all the time, didn't he? Uh, the scribes and Pharisees were constant thorns in his side, constantly trying to catch him in a trap so they might uh, be able to discredit him to the people uh, and, and make him out to be something other than what he said that he was. And so uh, he was way too smart for them too, and nothing would distract Jesus either from his mission, which was to live the perfect life of sin that we are, are, are from sin that we could not live, and then to die on the cross for our sins and be raised on the third day so that we would have the opportunity to go to heaven if we believe. Uh, so uh, Jesus really uh, employs the same tactics as Nehemiah, of course, from a godly standpoint. Uh, but the idea is, is, you know, you stay the course. Uh, you stay the course no matter what the opposition is, and you complete your miss mission. And that's what Nehemiah intended to do. So I'm sure that in, this, uh, in response to the open letter, when Nehemiah wrote back to them and, and, and chastised them as he did, I'm sure the people cheered when they read this response because the people would have been proud of Nehemiah for having the guts to stand up to this severe opposition and intimidation that he was facing. Most people want to follow strong leaders who have a very strong convictions and then have the strength and the courage to carry out those strong convictions. Uh, it would have been very discouraging for these uh, workers who had been working so hard on this wall to, to learn that their leader was an incompetent, wet noodle who wouldn't stand up uh, at any time when there was as soon as opposition reared its head. 
Now, we may have those kinds of leaders in our world right now, and sometimes we do, uh, but Nehemiah was not that kind of leader, was he? Nehemiah was a man who prayed against discouragement and faced opposition head on. He said, oh God, strengthen my hands. Uh, and so that's just a, a constant uh, prayer that Nehemiah, it was on Nehemiah's lips all the time. Strengthen my hands, Lord, strengthen my hands. Give me the ability, the power, the strength to do the work that you have for me. And so the work continued on. Uh, distancing Nehemiah from the project didn't work. Neither did disparaging Nehemiah before the people. And so their last try was deceiving Nehemiah through a traitor. Verses 10 to 14. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple and let's close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? And who is there like me who would go into the temple to save his own life? I will not go in. Then I realized that God certainly had not sent him, but he had uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I would become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so they might have an evil report in order that they could taunt me. Remember my God, Tobiah, and Sanballat, in accordance with these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Well, <clears throat> if ever Nehemiah would need this God-given discernment, it was now. Nehemiah must have trusted Shemaiah like he didn't trust Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Uh, there's a, a Deliah who's mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, uh, and the time frame corresponds with where we are. Uh, and so it's possible that, that this man, Deliah, is the same Deliah mentioned in 1 Chronicles 24, and that Deliah is a priest. And so this son of Deliah, Shemaiah, was probably also a priest, and that means that he would have special access to the temple. And that also would account for why Nehemiah would trust this man if he was a priest. So he goes to Shemaiah's house to listen to a prophecy from him. And he says, let's go hide in the temple, for they're coming to kill you, and they're coming to kill you at night. Well, to you and me, that might sound like a great plan. You know, maybe they won't look for him in the temple. Uh, but Nehemiah was way too smart. He, he knew that something was wrong with this plan, and he thought of two problems with Shemaiah's prophecy and the proposed solution. And the first thing that's wrong with this plan is that a, a true leader would never run like this, like Shemaiah was proposing. Uh, he would appear weak to his fellow Jews if he ran and hid in the temple. He said, uh, should a man like me flee? Well, a leader has to courageously stand against the opposition that's in his face, or he's going to lose all credibility with his followers. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that Nehemiah was not a priest. And if you're not a priest, you're not allowed to go into the temple sanctuary. Remember what happened to King Uzziah when he went into the temple to light incense, right? God immediately turned him into a leper because he wasn't allowed to be there. And so Nehemiah knew that he couldn't go in for those two reasons. What's Nehemiah doing? He's using this gift that he has of discernment, uh, a, a gift realized through prayer and through uh, walking with the Lord. So Nehemiah knew that, that uh, Shemaiah was not a friend, but a fiend to suggest such a thing, that he go into the temple, because he would lose credibility and he would be violating the law. And then they would have reason uh, to be able to shame him, to discredit him. And Nehemiah knew that no prophet of God would encourage him to run away, and especially to run away into the temple. 
So this attack is so subtle and it's so devious, uh, but still Nehemiah perceived that it was wrong. And then he has this extra step of perception that says, you know, Sanballat and Tobiah must have hired him to try and get me uh, to look weak and try to discredit me. Uh, and so uh, it's incredible to think of the, the perception and, and, the, uh, and the discernment that Nehemiah had. And so Nehemiah has got to deal with this now, yet another opportunity to be discouraged. And it's not just Shemaiah, it's Noadiah, the prophetess, who's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, uh, and also the other supposed prophets who were in on this conspiracy. So these are Jews, right? So it's more trouble from the inside, coming from the outside. Sambal, Tobiah, hiring people on the inside to work against uh, Nehemiah. And so this is just a great cause of discouragement. If you can't trust the people in your family, like Michael couldn't trust Tessio, right? And Tessio was going to have him killed. Uh, you, you can't trust anybody. And so Nehemiah has nobody that he's, he knows he can trust except for God. And so he's got to use his God-given discernment. Sambal and Tobiah obviously had a, a wide reach, right? They had tentacles that extended into uh, Nehemiah's network, and they, they could bribe people, and they could cause people to give Nehemiah great difficulty. And so he's got to deal with this. And so far, we've seen now in chapter 6 that Nehemiah had to deal with these plans to draw him away from the temple, to distance him from the work, and then to disparage him, to disgrace him before the people, and then to deceive him through co-conspirators of his own people and prophets. And so Nehemiah is just stands tall as this pillar of a man who refuses to be discouraged, who walks hand in hand with his God. Uh, and so Nehemiah knew what to do. He prayed another prayer that God would remember his enemies and their wicked plots. And then he finished building those walls. And so in verses 15 through 19, we see how he completes the wall. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they realized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence, and they were reporting my words to him. And then Sanballat sent letters to frighten me. So the first thing we see is that Nehemiah finishes the wall, and all of the enemy's attempts to destroy him and to discourage him, God turned right back on their heads, right? They tried everything they could think of, but Nehemiah persevered in completing this wall, and so it's his enemies who become discouraged when they were the ones trying to discourage him. And so they lost confidence because it was obvious to them that God was in this. He was with Nehemiah and that this wall would be completed. And so with subpar materials, with inexperienced workers, uh, against daily opposition, plots, and conspiracies, they managed to complete this project in only 52 days. Now, uh, when something seems impossible by human standards, well, we have to remember the God who makes the impossible possible. And that's what Nehemiah did. And now here, uh, Nehemiah explains how Tobiah uh, could be such a thorn in his side. It's because of relations. He's related to the Jews because he was the father-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. Uh, Ara was listed among the returning exiles in Ezra chapter 2. 
And this Tobiah also had family ties with Meshulam. Uh, he was uh, related by daughter-in-law. Uh, and Meshulam also uh, and Berechiah worked on the wall according to Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 4 and verse 30. So this is why Tobiah's got his tentacles in there. He's, he's got conspiracies working with people inside uh, of, of the Jewish uh, working unit. And so this is why many uh, scholars think that the Jews who were extorting interest from the workers were actually uh, Tobiah's pawns, people in on the, on the, uh, on the, on the uh, bribing and on the uh, uh, attempts to derail the project. So in these verses, uh, now Nehemiah, he's talking not just about the opposition to the wall, right? He's definitely talking about that, but he's talking about Tobiah's opposition to him for his entire tenure as governor, at least 12 years. Tobiah continued to send letters to try to frighten and discourage Nehemiah. And last week we learned that when, when the wealthy leaders and the nobles were, were extorting interest, Nehemiah uh, tried to put a stop to that. He confronted them, and it seems that they repented. But I wonder if they all repented, because Tobiah had these people on the inside. And I wouldn't be surprised if not every single one of them repented, uh, and that Tobiah's allies still continued to cause problems for Nehemiah. But Nehemiah stood strong against this opposition, and he prevailed. But he knew that just because he completed the wall, Tobiah wasn't going to go away, right? Uh, Tobiah was going to be there for his entire tenure. He was going to be a persistent problem. And Nehemiah also didn't rest on his laurels now that the wall was up. He knew that it still needed to be guarded. And so that's what Nehemiah does in the first four verses of chapter 7. When the wall was rebuilt and I had installed the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed... Then I put Hananiah, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, the gatekeepers are to keep the doors shut and bolted. Also, appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his own post and each in front of his house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So Nehemiah trusted his brother Hanani. He also trusted the commander of the citadel, this man named Hananiah, and he established rules for when these gates could be opened, only when the sun is up, only when it's very hot out, and only while there are guards there who are probably the same people who built the wall in the first place. So Nehemiah's got a system here because he used his God-given discernment for how to keep this city safe now that, uh, now that the walls are built. So uh, just imagine what a triumph this is for Nehemiah. Uh, only 10 months ago, he was cupbearer to the king uh, back in Persia, in Susa. And here he is 10 months later. He's governor of Judah. He's rebuilt these city walls that have lain in ruins for 100 years and with the walls now built, now they could build their houses. It says the people in it were few and the houses were not built. Well, you wouldn't build houses until you could have a wall to protect those houses. So now <clears throat> they could build those houses. So Nehemiah succeeded through prayer, through discernment, through strong leadership skills, and with the power of God. All these things are necessary tools if we are going to have biblical discernment. So that takes us through the first half of the book of Nehemiah, uh, which was uh, rehabilitating, repairing the wall. The second half of Nehemiah that will start next week is about how Nehemiah rededicated the people to God. So let's close with some applications here now to make it personal uh, to you and I. So the first thing we need to recognize is that Christians, you and I, we need discernment. 
You know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, right? And critics of Christianity love that verse, right? They constantly throw that one in our faces. They use it as a sword against us. They call Christians judgment, judgmental and, and hypocritical for judging others. Well, Jesus did not intend to prohibit all judgment, all discernment, right? He meant that when we judge, we should use God-given, biblical, spiritual discernment that comes through the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus spoke these words about the scribes and the Pharisees who were judging uh, using condescension, uh, condemning attitudes, promoting their own legalistic rituals, uh, looking to be honored by the people. So Jesus didn't mean don't ever judge. He meant don't judge like the scribes and Pharisees. That's what he was getting at. So we have to judge with spiritual discernment if we're to be different from the scribes and Pharisees who judged from human pride and ambition and control, trying to maintain their positions. Solomon wrote in the Proverbs how necessary it is to gain wisdom. Well, wisdom is just a synonym for discernment, right? We need this kind of biblical discernment. It's to be treasured more than anything Solomon said about wisdom in the Proverbs. So if this wisdom is so important, if this discernment is so necessary, how do we get it? Well, we get it by spending time with the Lord. Uh, discernment is a gift gained through experience, right? There's no substitute for experience. Uh, through prayer and through Bible study. Uh, Nehemiah lived his life on his knees, right? He had this biblical discernment uh, because he had cultivated this relationship that he had with God his entire life. And so when he needed spiritual discernment, he didn't say, oh my, I need spiritual discernment. Where am I going to get it? No, he already had this spiritual discernment because it was from a life spent walking hand in hand with God. So if we want spiritual discernment, it comes from uh, Bible study. It comes from prayer. It comes from experience. There are no shortcuts. Uh, we have to have spiritual discernment. If we're going to get it, it comes from this lifetime, hand-in-hand hand, walk with God. So we have to get discernment, and that's how we get it. And the second thing is that Christians need to trust God to overcome discouragement. <clears throat> when you read this book, it's striking how much opposition Nehemiah faces, right? And so why do you think God allowed Nehemiah to suffer all of this difficulty? I mean, God called him to the project, right? He prayed for four months. Uh, Artaxerxes gave him everything he needed. And as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, he starts having problems. God could have had the Jews roll out the red carpet for him, right? And he could have had Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem marshal their resources into constructing this wall rather than opposing him at every turn. Uh, the leaders who were extorting interest could have loaned money to the, to the people in need ethically. Uh, so if God called Nehemiah to this project, why did he allow such strong opposition? And Nehemiah is not alone. You know, when you read the Bible, uh, Moses had Pharaoh, right? David had the Philistines. All the prophets were hated by the people, and most of them were killed by the people for preaching the word. Uh, why does God allow such strong opposition? God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to keep him from, being, uh, from exalting himself uh, and, and to keep him dependent on God. God gave me a major problem, a more trouble than I could bear as I was graduating from seminary and trying to enter into a life of ministry and end my law practice. If he called me to ministry, why did he have to make it so hard? What was he trying to do through all of this? And I'm sure every one of you could tell your own stories about how you feel like God called you to something and yet the path was anything but smooth. 
Well, God allowed difficulty in Nehemiah's life, in Paul's life, in Moses' life, and in our lives so that we will totally depend on him. Nehemiah faced intense opposition, which caused him to live a life of prayer, which caused him to trust God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Well, if you want an answer to why you're going through hard stuff, that's the answer, right? God allowed me to go through hard stuff to humble me and to prepare me for ministry. And and you may know why God allowed you to go through some of the hard things you have gone through, or maybe God will not reveal them to you until you uh, get to heaven. But when we're going through hard times, uh, we have to discern that God has a reason for those hard times. Uh, He's allowing it for a reason, and so he's preparing us for something that he has for us, and he's teaching us dependence on him. So discernment and dependence go hand in hand. You won't have one without the other. You get discernment from depending, and when you depend, you get discernment. Uh, And so uh, that's what we need. We need not to be discouraged. We need not to uh, let our enemies or circumstances discourage us. We just need to keep leaning in, depending more and more on God. Don't be discouraged. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Ask for discernment and pray against and through discouragement and trust that God will use it for good to grow us and to bring glory to God. Let's pray. Lord God, when we are going through hard things, we are often not thankful for them, as James says. Thank God. And we thank God in in all of the trials and tribulations is what James tells us to do. We consider it all joy when we go through trials and tribulations of many kinds. And Lord, that's a hard thing for us to do. So Lord, give us the discernment to recognize that you're bringing these things into our life for a purpose and and help us with the discouragement as we go through the difficulties, through the the things that we hadn't planned that are interrupting our lives and and making our lives uncertain and more difficult, Lord. Uh, Help us to see your purpose in it, Lord. The way we can do these things, Lord, is only through this spiritual gift of discernment that you give, Lord, and that requires us to be on our knees, in our Bibles, and praying, Lord. And so we would ask that you would just teach us to apply these things to our lives, Lord. We need discernment if we're going to avoid discouragement and understand what you're doing in our lives and to give us the patience uh, to be able to wait while you work out what you're working out for our good and for your glory, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen.